the series called Better Together. We actually began that series, um, uh, oh, a number of months ago now. We covered the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. It is the book of Ephesians. It's a letter that's written to a city called Ephesus. It is in the country that we today call Turkey. And it's interesting to me that uh, there was a lot of us that had signed up for a tour to go to Turkey, and we would have been in Turkey right now. And uh, the craziness, uh, at least it was for me in the first hour, is that uh, as the Americans are being evacuated from Turkey, we were going to go to Turkey because of the fear of terrorism that is taking place there. And so we are here and because we are better together. We wanted to be together with you. And uh, you'll see on the map, you see some of the cities, seven cities of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, which are the cities that uh, we have going to explore, but also we're looking especially in Ephesus, uh, a city that is there. The first three chapters of Ephesians are powerful, powerful truths that kind of lay the doctrinal theological basis of what we believe. And uh, they are critical to how we understand our faith. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 then that we're going to cover now are those chapters that then put into practice the kinds of relationships we want to have. And beginning this morning is what is a walk that makes life better together. The application is for the corporate church as we get along with one another, but it's also an application that takes place if you're married in terms of your husband-wife relationships, as you'll see that as we go on this morning. It also counts in terms of uh, if you've got a roommate at college and you want to get along better with them, it counts if you're a place of business and you're working side by side with other people. If you're an employer and you want to have good employees, these are the qualities you want. And if you're an employee, you want a boss that has these qualities as well. So there's a lot of relationships, neighbors, uh, club memberships, wherever you hang out, whatever you do, these things make life better together. So I encourage you to follow along carefully as we look in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 6, as we begin this second half of the book of Ephesians. And let me read what the Apostle Paul writes to the church that is in the city of Ephesus uh, that is much ruins today, but it was a thriving city in those days. And he writes to them these words, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. And so he begins this great chapter, and he talks about this whole thing of a walk, a kind of a walk. What makes us worthy of this calling? What is, what is the calling that God has for each of us? And I'm intrigued by this first verse. Let me just go through it one more time on the screen behind me. Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He's not writing out of some comfortable uh, uh, home setting where he's got a beautiful garden and a little waterfall and a little fountain. He's being fed and cared for and pampered. He's in a Roman prison cell and he is being held against his will. He's not violated any laws of man. 
They just believe that he's not following the Roman rule that they want them to have. And because he's a believer in Jesus, a follower in Jesus, in those days there's no Bill of Rights, there's no Constitution, there are no privileges that we have today for a freedom of an expression of our faith. They didn't have that, he didn't have that, and he's thrown into jail. So he's writing from a prison cell, and he calls himself a prisoner. He's literally a prisoner, but he's there because of his belief in the Lord. And he says, I implore you to walk. I love this word implore because it captures the idea of better together. It is a word that is made up of parakaleo. Para means beside, like a paramedic comes alongside the wounded. And kaleo means to call. So he says, I want to, even though I am a prisoner held captive by the Roman government, I want to come alongside you. And I want to call to you. These things I think you need to know. This will make life better for you as we do it together. I wish I could be there. I can't. But let me tell you what is important so that your walk will be a life that is better with one another. And so he says, I want to implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which with what you have been called. What is the calling of God? If you go back to the first part, just a quick go back to Ephesians chapter 1. We see there that just as He chose us, He called us before the foundation of the world. Why did He call us? Even before Adam and Eve, why did He call us? So that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That's God's calling. And I just want to pound that just for a moment. God didn't call us so that I could have a better GPA than someone else. It's okay if you do. God didn't call us so I can have a higher IQ, although it's okay if you have that. God didn't call us so I can get the job of my choice, my dream job. God didn't call us so I can have the home of my dreams. God didn't call us so I could have two and a half kids as I grow up in life and have that average out. God didn't call us so I could have the spouse that I've always wanted. Now, all those things God may do. But that's not part of the calling. Notice what the calling is. He says, whatever you are, single, married, parent, non-parent, employed, not employed, in school, out of school, kicked out of school, couldn't graduate, didn't make the cut, whatever that may be for each of us. He says, here is my calling. It's simply that you would be the holy and blameless child that I gave my son Jesus to make possible for you. So wherever you're at in the status of life, positions in life, prestige of life, those are all things we want to help with. But when you cut right to the core of the calling, it's holiness. Wherever we're at, whatever the problems are, whatever the circumstances, it's holiness and blameless before Him. And we'll show you how God works that in. So I want to walk in a manner worthy of my calling. And he uses the word walk. He didn't use the word run. This isn't a speed course. This isn't something where I can do something and hurry up and grow up in my spiritual faith. This is the journey that is a walk. And I think of a walk, I think of a slow, steady, consistent, persistent steadfastness to pursuing the holiness of God. And there are no shortcuts. There are no easy ways to get there. And if you're running and you fall, you're going to be hurt a whole lot more than if you're walking. And we all fall. We all fail. 
But when we stumble in a walk, we get back up and we keep going. So he wants us to walk that way, but he wants us to walk in a worthy way. I love this word worthy. It's something you don't see in the English language, but it's a, it's a term, axios. It's a term that we use in the marketplace. If you go to the market and you go to a butcher, you say, I want, to, I want a pound of meat. He'd put a bunch of meat on one side of the scale, and you'd have your bartering chips or whatever your currency was in those times or today. You put it on the other side, and as soon as your currency on the one side balances the scale of the meat on the other side, the butcher would say, that is a worthy price. Paul takes that term of economy, he places it into the church, and he says, I want you to look at yourselves as if you're on a scale, and I want you to be in balance. I want your weight on the one side to be consistent with your belief system on the other side. I want you to have a fullness of all that it means that if you say you believe this, you actually live it, and there is a healthy balance in your life so that you're working it all to grow. Now let me show you a little video clip that will bring into focus the problem of not always having balance for steady walking growth. Take a look. So you're thinking about getting Verizon TV service? You bet. Well, did you know they often use expensive cancellation fees to lock you into a long-term contract? Seriously? Man, makes me wonder what else I don't know. Do you know you're supposed to work out your lower body, too? So I just, I just very tickled by that, and I'm sorry to say that, but uh, so I wanted to work it in somewhere. Um, but what I, but I love, what I love about that, is that there's sometimes we are so strong in one area, but we get this tremendous weakness in another area. And there's some people that are highly gifted in one way, and usually those people that are gifted in this area have a great weakness down here. We believe in a corporate church and in individuals in a marriage and relationships and friendships, whatever the case might be, that we want to have a healthy balance of developing the entire body of Christ and the entire heart of each individual. And we don't get out of balance. And so what we want is this. What I believe is on one side of the scale and what I live is on the other side of the scale and it better measure up. I say I believe in holiness, then God says, okay, live holy. I say I believe in loving one another, then I say we'll live one another. So whatever the belief system on one side, I need to live it on the other side. That's worthiness. That's a worthy call. We also look at it, I just threw God on one side, and I'm on the other side. God says, I want you to be as holy as I am. I'm over on the other side, and often it's holy God up here and sinful me down here. And God says, I want to bring that into balance. And that's what Jesus died to make possible. Jesus died for my sins to forgive me of my sins so that I can say that my sin has been put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness is put on me so I am in balance with God's holiness. Everybody has that opportunity to be in balance with God's holiness as we'll give you opportunity in a moment. The other area of balance is not just me personally but the church. Our desires, you heard some of the things that Tim just talked about, is that we have balance. In our belief system at Calvary, we have three principles, three purposes, to connect with God and others, to grow in our faith, to reach Orange County and the world for Jesus Christ.
Sometimes we have people that are wonderful in connecting with other people. They're outgoing. They're extroverts. Very socially driven. And I admire people who have those skills. But there may be a weakness where their legs are skinny, proverbially speaking, in that they're not growing in their faith. It's not based upon knowledge and truth and biblical concepts that guide them. The love is sort of flippant here and there and everywhere, but they're not growing spiritually. What we want is for each of us to have balance. Some of us, like me, I love to study God's Word. I love to dig in deep. I love to read the languages. I love to look at background and find resources that give insight to biblical truth. The problem with some people like me with big analytical minds is that we get into the truth, but then we don't always live the truth in terms of loving people. Some people who are highly intellectually driven by biblical truth are failures in being able to love other people, connecting with other people. And that's not balance either. And so what we want is this healthy balance where somebody's not strong up here but have very skinny legs. We want the whole body of Christ to be developed, connecting with God and others, growing in our faith, and reaching Orange County. That's why we provide on Wednesday night the Alpha Course to grow in your faith. That's why we provide on Wednesday night couples talk so you can connect with others, especially the spouse that you said that you would die for, right? And so therefore, I better be able to communicate. If I will, for do, till death do us part, then I better make it a, as good a journey as I can until I die. And so we provide these things so that we can grow and we connect and we reach. We want balance, healthy balance. That's the goal, to have a worthy walk of the calling that God has called us into. How do you get there? Three words, humility, gentleness, patience. That's what Paul talks about. I'm going to talk about them now. Humility, gentleness, and patience. You know, I'm, because I have snow on my head, I've lived long enough now that I get a little aggravated at what we reward in life. Uh, we had the Academy Awards not too long ago, and you get all these princesses and princes that come up on the platform and, and have these fumbling speeches as if they've never stood before a camera and said anything eloquent at all. And then they talk about this award and how undeserving and the others nominated, being nominated with it. And they go on and on and on about all the awards. Why? Because they stood before a camera and read a script. And they did it well. The directors, the cameramen, we give lots of awards. In sports field, not that long ago, we, uh, the Heisman Trophy was awarded to the best running back in the country. And we say, that's great. Tomorrow night, we got basketball players of two teams, and, and one team is going to come out top an NCAA championship for the North Carolina or for Syracuse. It's going to, or Vill, Villanova, sorry. Villanova, North Carolina are going to, somebody's going to win. And they're going to get the trophy, and they're going to be, there's going to be all confetti that's coming down. the And we, we, oh, look at all how great these people are. Well, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, you know, when God wants to give out awards, he says, they're, they're highly gifted. I, I made them gifted. That's just something that they have. But when I want to give out an award to the people that I have called there's three things I want them to have, and I'll award them for that. Humility, 
gentleness, patience. Those things you never get awards for. No one's going to commend you for that. They may say something about that at your funeral, but you're not getting any awards between now and then. So I want to highlight those as Paul describes them because these are the three attitudes that makes life better together. Humility. Humility in contrast to pride. Humbled people are described for us in Philippians chapter 2. The problem with humility is that as soon as you think you have it, you've lost it. And so it's a challenge. It's hard for humble people to talk about how humble they are because it just, you know, obviously it comes across in the wrong way. And so we're not going to talk about any of you who are humble, although many of you I could talk about, and then you would feel miserable if I did. But we're going to talk about Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, here is the most humble man. And I put these on the back of the outline. I know that you will not remember. When I throw a bunch of words on the screen like that, there's no way you're going to retain that. I put it on the back of the outline. I simply implore you with Paul to say, God, is this in my life? Are these qualities in my life? These are the qualities of humility. He says in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes the first two verses, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being in the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Joy and I, when we got married 41 years ago, we made those verses our life verses And in 41 years of marriage, I still have to work hard to do those things. But humility is beginning to be described here in verses 1 and 2, and they are on the screen. It is where I work hard to maintain unity and peace. It doesn't come naturally. It's something I pursue. A humbled person does not consider their own desires as more important than the other desires. Notice in verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He being the most humbled man in the world, and this is what he did. He says, God, I care more about Dave than I care about my own needs. I care about you more than I care about my own needs. Humbled people seek to find out about the interest of others before they go on about their own interest. Humbled people will let go of their own needs and rights for the sake of others. Humbled people have a high listening value Humbled people have a low speaking value. They want to hear about you. They want to be interested in you. They want to deny their own personal desires because your desires are more important. Obviously, you don't cross the line biblically in terms of holiness, but when it comes right down to it in a marriage, in a friendship, in a relationship, in an employment situation, bosses, spouses, Teachers, students, and roommates value you more if you are humble. Proud people don't care about conflict. Proud people are not concerned about division. Proud people are not burdened by lack of unity and lack of peace because they're in pursuit of their own desires. Humbled people are burdened for the pursuit of unity and peace. 
for the desires of those who have needs because I will deny my own rights so that someone else can be cared for. That's humility. And I challenge us, look at those and say, God, is that in me? Honestly. And then the most challenging thing you could do is this, to look at that list. And if you're married, give it to your spouse. If you have friends and you're unmarried, give it to a close confidant. Give it to your mentor, one who's discipling, whoever that may be, and say, would you look at that list and would you say, those are my traits of humility? Do I have those? I tell you what, it could be the most threatening and challenging period of your life, but God says if the most important thing in living better together is humility, then begin there and work on that like Jesus did. It's powerful. It changes relationships. I came across this article just a couple of days ago. The Wall Street Journal had written an article entitled, The Case for Humble Executives. This man did a study that humility is the flavor of the day today. This is like, well, this is in 2015. He says, why is humility, why are humble leaders in demand? Because he gave these reasons. Because they listen well, they admit mistakes, they share the limelight, and recruiters and coaches say the servant leadership model promotes collaboration. People value humility. And finally, it's making the Wall Street Journal. Not a lot of that. And there are people um, running for president that could probably benefit from reading that as well. And so it's important for us to see how these things interface in a lot of arenas. And that you and I, it begins with me. The second quality is from humility is gentleness. Gentleness in, as opposed to anger. Now, the word that Paul uses for gentleness is a term that is used in this context. Uh, let's say you acquired a lion. It's a wild lion. You train that lion to become domesticated. And that lion follows your commands. Everything you say, the lion does. You want to do tricks, you want to roll over, you want to jump, you want to dance. The lion does all that stuff. That's what it means to be gentle. It becomes a trained beast. The lion still has just as much power if the lion wanted to. The lion could eat your head off. But the lion is trained. It's domesticated. It is under the rule of the master. Paul takes that term with that meaning inside it. He says, that's what I want. You can have just as much power, but I want to bring you into a master-servant relationship with God where God says, this is the way I should live my life. I have just as much power. I could use the power if I choose, but I choose not to use the power. So I step back and I say, God, you're in charge. I'll let you handle this because I am under your control. You are my master. That's gentleness. Let me give you a good illustration of gentleness that's found in the Old Testament. The story of Moses. We all probably know Moses as that great and mighty leader. He didn't start out that way. He had a lot of his problems. But I throw under the screen some of the qualities of Moses. But let me read an account of Numbers 12. Then Miriam and Aaron, brother and sister. Miriam's the sister. Aaron's the brother of Moses, this great leader of the nation of the Old Testament, Israel. 
Moses, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. He married a Cushite woman. So sister and brother are quarreling with Moses because of the woman that he married. That's not the core issue. Here's the core issue. Verse 2, And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Here's Miriam and Aaron, brother and sister, as close as they could be, blood connections. And Miriam and Aaron saying, it's not fair that Moses is the only one who's being addressed, who's able to address the nation. I, Miriam, I should be able to do that. I resent that Moses is the leader, and I am not. Jealousy, pride, undermining, attacking, criticizing, and the Lord heard it. It is in verse 3 that we learn that Moses is the humblest, meekest man in the world. Now the man Moses was very humble more than anyone who was on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, to Miriam, you three come out of the tent of meeting. They came out of the tent of meeting, and for the sake of time, God said, Miriam, get out there, and he gave her leprosy. And after a period of time, Moses appealed to God and says, God, please bring her back. I want to restore my sister. I know that she undermined me. I know that she attacked me. And it's in that context of authority under attack, undermining by the people that should be the closest and most trustworthy individuals, that God says, and I noticed that. Yeah, Moses, I saw that. And I resent that. And I'm going to take out punishment on her for what she did. It's in that context we learn that Moses is gentle. And these are some of the qualities on the back side of the outline. My gentleness will be tested when people question and undermine my position and authority. That's going to happen. Because people see gentle people as weak people. Proud people see gentle people as weak people because they are people that I can take down. And that's how Miriam saw Moses as a very gentle man, but a weak man. And they are not weak. They're some of the most strongest in character than, of the kind of leadership there is out there because they have nothing to gain in their own pride. They're not driven by ego. Proud people are weak people. Gentle people are strong within their own inner core. They've got good balance and they're worthy of their calling. And so therefore they do not respond in anger or revenge. They have the power to respond like a lion to his trainer. Moses had the power to respond, but he did not. These are qualities that we need to have that no matter our circumstances... I respond as a servant of the Master who has trained my life to relinquish my rights, relinquish my desires, and say, God, you need to take charge of this situation because it's beyond me. There is a powerful place for humbled, gentle people that God strategically places in leadership so His will can be accomplished because proud people and egotistical people are get in the way of God. Humbled and gentle people carry out the will of God. And then there's one other quality, and it's patience. Patience, macrothumia, macro meaning large, thumos meaning anger. It takes me a long time to get angry. This is God. He is like that. 
And I love this, uh, this description of patience. It's a person who has the power to take revenge but does not. It is one that refuses to retaliate. It's used in 1 Timothy 15 and 16. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom, the Apostle Paul says, I am the foremost of all sinners. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience. Macrothumia. God says it takes me a long time to get angry with big time sinners like Paul and Dave Mitchell. As an example of those who would believe in Him for eternal purposes. If you want and I want, we want to live life better together in marriages, in friendships, in community, at work, begin with humility, gentleness, and patience. It'll go against the grain of what you feel is right. Life will seem a bit unfair at first, but I'm telling you, once you massage those as character traits that are on autopilot in your soul, and your heart, believe me, things like couples talk will sound like, yeah, that's right, that's right, I do that. That comes out of me by nature. The things that we teach, they become part of you. That makes life better together. And sometimes the anger of a proud person, the retaliation of an impatient person, they just destroy and they're corrosive to the relationships. And they are feeling natural. It's natural to feel angry at someone. It's more natural to want to retaliate to someone. It's more natural to feel like my ego is more important than the problem. That's natural. That comes out of our flesh, out of our sinfulness, where God is saying, no, no, when the Spirit of God takes hold of you, it should be more natural that humility, not pride, gentleness, not anger, patience, not retaliation, become the traits of my life. And when that happens, we begin to life live life better together. As Paul says then in the next couple of verses, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, humility, gentleness, and patience wrapped up in love brings about unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's what we want in our relationships. That's what we want in the church. It's core to all that we do. And when we have a healthy, worthy calling where we are in balance in our fitness of walking before God, then these things are the results. We have unity in the bond of peace. No one gets married and wants to have fights. We want peace. No one takes a job and wants to fight with a co-worker. No one gets into a classroom and wants to have a fight with a teacher or a fellow student who's in the study group with them. We want peace. These things drive us towards that. Now let me just talk a little bit about tolerant love. He says, in tolerance you love one another. Sometimes the concept of tolerance is this. Tolerant, oh, you're being tolerant. That means you're giving in, you're acquiescing, you're appeasing. And that's an unfortunate use of that term because that's not what Paul is saying. Let me describe tolerance. Tolerance, I'll throw it on the screen behind me. It is made up of two words, to be up, to hold up. The idea of tolerance is to hold up against someone to bear with them. Let me give you two examples of how that can work. 
Let's take uh, our youngest daughter, Kirsty, for example. She was, uh, she was kind of an independent spirit as she was growing up in her little early years, and frankly, she expressed some of that in her high school years as well. And we have survived. Uh, but let's just take her when she was three years old, and she would get that determined look, and that little jaw would jut out, and a big curly head of hair on her was just glowing in, the, in the, all this, uh, you know, strong. Oh, Jessica would say, look out for Kiersey. And she would be that way. And then sometimes she would run, and she would trip, she would fall, and she would get a boo-boo on her knee, right? And she would cry. And then I would go over, and I would hold her and embrace her. It's okay. It'll feel better. That's tolerant love. Because it's holding another close to help the wounded who need to be healed. That's one kind of tolerant love. Here's another kind. Let's say Kirsty is on the rampage and she's being rebellious and not following the orders and getting out of hand and, and she wants to run in the middle of a mall and make a big mess and run into people and people are having to dodge and she's being outright rebellious and having a temper tantrum in the store or the mall or wherever we happen to be. I come alongside, I grab hold of her and I say, Kirsty, I love you. Please, would you obey? We can't have this behavior. And I hold her, tolerant. It is bearing with and holding up another in love so that their bad behavior stops. So tolerant love can be used in two ways. It is to help bear up the wounded. It is to help hold accountable the rebellious. Let me give you another example. One of the things that I've heard recently that people have asked about, and so I will speak to it and speak as directly as I feel like I have freedom to do so, is the fact that uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, we had the joy of helping to launch a new church called Prodigal Church. It's in Irvine area, and it's still going on. We had two couples stand up here on our platform with us. One was Brent Dedman. Another was Matt Hemphill and Patty and Aaron, respectively their wives. And we commissioned them to that. About a month ago, it came to light that Brent had some problems. He called me, we talked, he talked to others. And then on that Sunday following, about a month ago now, he made a resignation statement. In his statement, he acknowledged that he had sinned. And his sin as we now understand it, was in sinful attraction to another woman. And he said, I have been disqualified from ministry for this sin. And so they, as a church, received his resignation, and he was removed from all responsibilities at that church. And not even a small group, nothing. He was done. Tolerant love would suggest not to appease, enable, or support, but to hold and to hold accountable so that the bad behavior no longer continues. There's been a devastation of a fallout, both in his personal family as well as his ministry, his teaching responsibilities at a local school. He's lost that job as well. So he's being disciplined by the consequences of his behavior, and it grieves our hearts that this has occurred. 
On the other hand, Matt Hemphill, who also was here when we commissioned, and his beautiful wife, Erin, who is Dan O'Brien's daughter, so you didn't know who she is, but Erin and Matt, two weeks ago were commissioned now to take on the responsibility of being the pastor at Prodigal. I had lunch with Matt just a couple of days ago. He's excited. He's young. He's enthusiastic. And he's going to lead that church. He's going to teach that church. He's going to develop that church. He's got about 100 good people that are there. They're going to work together and do all that they need to do so that church becomes the church that we all want it to be, a year-and-a-half-old church. And we're thankful for that. Matt's going to office out of our facilities here. He's going to meet with us as a staff on a regular basis. And we're going to have tolerant love for him. But going back to Brent, some people think, well, why? If I, had a, if I was fired from my job every time I had an inappropriate relationship or a desire for another woman, man, I'd, I would have been fired years ago. Well, if you don't understand a little bit about what we expect from people who do what I do, preach, teach, pastor, that in James chapter 3, 1, that, that we who teach are to be held to a higher standard of accountability. Because when I say something, I better be living it. If I'm not living it, I try to be as honest as I can, that I don't do everything perfectly. And if my wife were here, she could say, you know, I, I could back you up on that one. <laughs> but when I say I believe something, I better be able to live it. And when I teach something, I better be able to live it. If Brent is teaching something, but he's falling very, very short in living it out, then that gap, that is no longer worthy, no longer in balance with the call. Remember what Paul said? I want you to be worthy of the calling. And the calling to ministry of full-time service like pastoring requires of people like me and all of our staff a higher calling and a higher walk that is consistent with the nature of God. We're not perfect. We will commit sins. But there are some sins that reach a level of outright rebellion that falls very short and are very intentional of the holiness of God. And we take those very seriously. And so we pray for them. We pray for Brent and Patty. I pray for them every day that God will bless and God will provide. We love Patty. We love and want to support her and care for her as we do with Brent. So there's lots to be done. But I want you to know that when it comes to some of these matters, it's not just something we teach out of the Word, but sometimes it becomes reflected in how we live. And there are painful things that we will go through, but we invite humility, patience, gentleness, and a tolerant love that, it, that just embellishes the terrible circumstances that sometimes we find ourselves in, that we live that out. That's how we do it. And when we do that, we come to this point where we have this. We have one body. We are united. We're, one, we're part of a community. We have one spirit, Paul says, because we have God's power. We have one hope because God is controlling my future. I can't control everything, but God can. My hope is in Him. 
one Lord because he is the one that domesticated me. I have the power, but I relinquish it to him. One faith because of what I believe in is true. One baptism. I openly profess my faith in Jesus Christ. And one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all because God is my Father who sovereignly watches over my whole life. And when you have that kind of a foundation for what you live out, then humility and gentleness and patience and love, these things are freeing up because I know that I'm part of a body, a community, a Lord, a God who is in all, through all, and over all of my life, and my hope is in his future. It's he's, he's got my future in his hands. I don't have to worry about my own future. He's got it. That's a sweet place to live the Christian life. And that's when the walk is truly, truly better together. And God invites us into that. And I want to invite you into it as well. I'm going to receive our communion And as the people prepare to bring the elements to us, I want to read this verse that teaches us about communion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, and that's what we'll have, the bread and the cup, in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul writes and uses that same axios word for worthy. He says, I don't want you to be, I don't want you to take the bread and the cup unworthily. Where God is here and I'm way down here in sin. God says, I don't want that. I want to bring you both right together. Communion is where I'm one with God. And so I invite you to examine yourselves, as I will do in my life. Before I take that bread before I drink that cup. We examine ourselves to find out, God, is there anything that I need to confess to you? Because Jesus is eagerly waiting to come, forgive, and clothe me, as the Scripture says, clothe me with his righteousness. Give me his holiness so I can be in balance with God and so that Jesus and my life, we are one. We are in balance. I am worthy. It's a great place to be. So we invite you into it to receive his forgiveness. Say, God, I'm sorry. This I know, that I know, these things I think. I just bring it all to you, God. Forgive me. And truly repent of those things and receive his forgiveness. And then you become worthy, holy as God is. Takes us all the way back to the beginning to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Communion is one way we express that worthiness. Let me invite the elements and the folks to bring the elements up. And let me pray. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus, the cup, the blood of Jesus. Take the elements, hold them for a moment. I'll come back up after a time of worship, and then we'll take these elements together. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for these elements of the bread, the body of Jesus, fully human, fully man, to taste death like we will experience it, to taste temptations like we will experience, to smell and live in some of the hardships that we live in. Thank you for the cup, the blood of Jesus. Thank you for that cleansing work that gives to us the holiness of God. Lord, we are so undeserving, but you are so gracious. So with these elements, God, we say thank you. Thank you for making us worthy to live the life that you've called us to live. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.